Section 9 of Other People's Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kay Hand. Other People's Lives by Rosa Nochette Carey. Book 3 The Two Mothers. Chapter 5 Transformation. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang oft ugly as burns tells us and mrs compton soon realized the truth of this saying before many days had elapsed she came reluctantly to the conclusion that her visit to venice must be given up for the present often since her first visit many years ago venice had haunted her like a dream of beauty and she had longed to see it again she had anticipated a great deal of enjoyment from witnessing penelope's wonder and delight when she first found herself in a gondola being steered down dark narrow canals under mysterious bridges and past frowning prisons and great marble palaces but all these tempting plans were frustrated by jack's odd choice of travelling companions ben bolt indeed might have been tolerated he had been round the world and knew a thing or two and he could be trusted to be on his good behaviour under any circumstances but a perpetually ticking mongoose who was disagreeably tame and fond of human society and a small romping monkey with a woebegone visage and a diabolical tendency to mischief were simply unendurable to be accompanied by a travelling menagerie for a huge snow-white cockatoo with a yellow crest had turned up a few hours later was plainly an impossibility and even penelope sorrowfully admitted this jack took the whole matter after his usual fashion with a sort of airy good nature the madre need not trouble herself he would cart off the big cases and the mongoose and the cockatoo and the small tawny-haired embodiment of original sin to either kingsdean or brentwood farm the journey would be nothing to a fellow who had just been around the world and he and ben would be back in no time but to jack's surprise and somewhat to his disappointment his mother objected to this jack must not go home alone the idea pained her after an absence of eighteen months she could not bring herself to part with him even for a few days her visit to venice could be put off until next year they could stay at paris for a week or two longer and then go straight back to kingsdean she must give up all idea of the flats until later in the year penelope listened with a sinking heart as mrs compton retailed her plans she looked so pale and wistful that after considerable thought madame decided that some modification of her plan was necessary and at last she took jack into confidence jack was immensely tickled and interested in spite of his want of cleverness he had plenty of common sense why should we not run up to town in may for a week or two he suggested rather to madame's surprise for she knew how he abhorred the flat there is to be a dog show that i rather want to see and then you could ask felix earl to dinner you and trimmer might invest in a parisian toilette for penelope and as i am bound she has never seen felix in his war paint they will be mutually struck with each other and fall in love over again and here jack threw back his head with one of his old merry laughs and then strolled off to visit his menagerie leaving madame to digest this advice at her leisure but in the end she took it with one or two amendments and pen was infinitely consoled jack's joy at beholding sandalins again almost scandalized his mother's feelings of propriety he shook hands rapturously with every one he met even the railway porters more than once he made the coachman pull up the horses that he might jump out to greet some familiar face the children at the lodge grinned from ear to ear when they saw him here be the young master shouted little job shuffling into the lodge and mrs tennant flung on a clean apron and came forward curtsying and smiling 
it is a good day for sandalins mr john she said as the young squire wrung her hand and i'll be bound madame thinks so you are looking fine and hearty sir and then jack nodded and swung little nan up to his shoulder she was a small blue-eyed mite of three job if you and silas like to come up to the house to-morrow morning he said in his good-humoured way i will show you a live monkey and a cockatoo and a wonderful little animal they call a mongoose and then he kissed nan and putting a bright shilling into each of the boy's grimy hands jumped into the carriage again dear old kingsdean it looks lovelier than ever he said admiringly and then there was a great flapping of wings from the terrace and machiavelli with a hoarse croak of exceeding joy came hopping across the grass to welcome his master before twenty-four hours had passed mrs compton told herself that eighteen months of travel had done very little for jack he had had a good time and enjoyed himself and he had brought back several cases of curious and interesting things wonderfully embroidered mandarin robes japanese weapons and armor lacquered work in red and black ivory carving strange old temple lamps a kibachi or firebox wadded futons and brass and silver tipped pipes and even a complete dress worn by some pretty dark-eyed musumi madame and penelope looked on with wide-eyed wonder as jack opened the cases and explained the use and meaning of every article jack had certainly not saved his money madame looked a little askance at some lovely tapestry that jack had just informed her he had got dirt cheap she wondered what mr pointer thought of all the checks that jack had drawn well she had followed her husband's advice and had given the boy his head and he had frisked gaily like an undisciplined colt in whatever pasture he had wished to disport himself and now he meant to settle down as a country gentleman and farmer it was no use to delude herself or to dream visions that were as baseless and unreal as though they were built on sand jack would be jack until the end of the chapter and she must just make the best of him jack felt vaguely that his mother was disappointed in him she was very loving and unusually yielding but every now and then she would look at him sadly one day he went to his old friend and confidant trimmer as a child trimmer had been the recipient of all his little woes and grievances and he had never grown out of the habit of consulting her even in his mannish days you see trimmer i cannot live up to mother's standard he finished that is the long and short of it i have been around the world and i have come back the same stupid jack compton there was a slight huskiness in jack's voice that made trimmer take off her spectacles and regard him anxiously i would not say that mr john my dear she returned seriously calling yourself names does not mend matters anyone with eyes can see how happy the mistress is to have you back times out of number she has said to me as i was brushing her hair for the night if i could only know what my boy was doing trimmer i should sleep more comfortably she just pined for a sight of you and that was the truth but all the same my dear old nursie she is disappointed in me no she does not tell me so as trimmer shook her head at this but she makes me feel it every hour of the day mr john you must not say such things returned trimmer soothingly we all know that the mistress bless her is a little difficult at times more than once when she has been talking to me i have turned round and told her that nothing short of an angel from heaven would satisfy her as long as the old master lived she just fretted herself about him she wanted to put him on a pedestal and have people crowding round to do him honour it seemed to hurt her cruelly that his notions did not suit hers and that he only cared for country pleasures and quiet life dear old dad well and i take after him trimmer yes mr john you are just the moral of him and the mistress is bound to see it in the end very likely she had a sort of hope that seeing all those strange countries might have roused you a bit and of course you have learnt a good many things have you not my dear looking at him with wistful affection but jack only broke into one of his boyish laughs 
Oh, yes, I have added considerably to my education. I've learned to eat with chopsticks and to drink a dozen cups of pale amber-colored tea in a day without milk or sugar, but I could not manage the sake. And I have floored a Yankee and caught a couple of thieving Chinamen by their pigtails and knocked their heads together. And I have roared out rule Britannia and Britons never, never shall be slaves, round campfires and in ranches and once at the foot of a Buddhist monastery in Tibet. In fact, Ben Bolt and I have distinguished ourselves. And then Jack marched off, hunching up his shoulders and making believe to whistle in a light-hearted way, while Trimmer shook her head again solemnly and took up her work. The mistress is making a mistake, she said to herself, and it is not for the first time either. It stands to reason that a fine young man like Mr. John should have his own notion in things. The old master would not be managed, and Mr. John has a will of his own too, and the mistress is bound to find it out. The situation was becoming a little strained when the time came for the promised visit to town. Mrs. Compton, who had strong dramatic instincts, had acted on Jack's playful hint and was carefully planning a coup de théâtre. One day, Felix received an invitation that filled him with astonishment. Mrs. Compton desired the pleasure of his company to dinner. Her son had returned from his travels and would be very pleased to renew his acquaintance. There would be only two other gentlemen. That graciously worded note perplexed and mystified Felix. A cynical smile curled his lips as he remembered that scene in the bakery eight or nine months before, and Madame's curt remarks and the general standoffishness. Should he stand on his dignity, too, and refuse the invitation? To be sure, he had always liked the young squire, and then there was Penn. Poor little Penn, with the wistful eyes and the soft, pathetic face. It would be cruel to disappoint her, especially as he had some good news for her private ear. Mr. Burnaby had heard of a good opening for him, a hard-worked doctor in Kensington who needed help. Felix had already written full particulars to his mother. Dr. Hetherington wants me to go to him at once. He says Dr. Burnaby's recommendation is a sufficient testimonial, and now keep this to yourself, little mother. If Dr. Hetherington and I hit it off, there is a chance of a partnership in the future. Dear old Burnaby sent for me the other evening and told me that he meant to help me to it. Hetherington has got a splendid practice, so he told me, but his partner is just dead and he is frightfully overworked. I am to see how it suits me and work on a bit, and by and by Mr. Burnaby is to pull me through. Of course, I shall be in his debt for years, but as I shall be obliged to have a house, you may as well manage it for me until Penn and I are married. Felix wondered vaguely how soon he would be able to keep a wife. Dr. Burnaby had told him more than once rather seriously that he ought to get married as soon as possible. People preferred a married doctor to a bachelor, he had remarked, but Felix had made no response to this. His lad's love had cooled, and he was in no hurry to exchange his freedom for matrimony, and very likely, in his secret thoughts, he doubted whether Penn, with all her gentleness and sweetness, was quite the wife for a clever, rising doctor. Felix was in a curiously undecided mood as he stepped into the hansom that was to convey him to Westminster. He had had a hard day's work, and had been up the greater part of the night, and his nerves had been a little excited by the unexpected success of a difficult and trying operation. Dr. Hetherington had told him that he had covered himself with glory. Indeed, the older man had secretly marveled at Felix's coolness. He will be a second Burnaby if he goes on like this, he said to himself. Felix's outward coolness was no sign of insensibility or want of feeling. When the poor girl whose life he had saved looked up at him, he had given her an answering smile, so sweet and full of encouragement that it inspired her with more courage to endure her sufferings. The moment was almost perfect to Felix. A sense of power, a consciousness that he had found his work in life and was doing it well, seemed to lift him to a higher plane. It was then that the healing instinct of the true physician seemed to intensify and enrich the whole purpose of his life. 
I would not change with anyone, he thought, as he rushed to his lodging for a hasty luncheon before starting on his afternoon work. And at that very moment, Miriam Earle, knitting cosily in her beehive chair on the sunny porch, was saying to herself, It is pen that he wants, poor lad, if you would only believe it. It is the young folk who ought to be in the world together, but I am too old for new places and new ways. I should hate to have a pack of stuck-up servant maids buzzing round me and making fun of my homely ways behind my back. I should be eaten up with worry and fidget. No, no, my lad must leave me in the cottage that David built for me. If it comes to the worst, I would give over the cake-making and have Peggy Black in to do the rough work. Felix held his head a little higher than usual as he entered Madame's drawing-room. The May sunshine streamed in at the open window. The room was full of the fragrance of jonquils and mignette. Jack stood on the rug talking to Mr. Pointer and another clerk, and Mrs. Compton, in her rich morning silk and jet, rose from her chair with a bright smile of welcome. "'I am so pleased to see you, Mr. Earle,' she said graciously. "'Jack, my dear, this is a very old acquaintance of yours. Mr. Pointer and Mr. Keppel, this is an old friend of ours from Sandalins.' And then Jack came forward, full of friendliness, and delighted to see his old playfellow again. Felix was soon at his ease, but he wondered and grew secretly uneasy at Penn's non-appearance. He had just returned an absent reply to Mr. Pointer, when there was a slight rustle near him, and then a slight girlish figure in white stepped out of the little conservatory and came shyly toward him. Felix felt a little dizzy, and the blood mounted to his forehead. He had caught sight of white gleaming arms under the lace ruffles and a soft, rounded throat with a cluster of pale pink roses against it, a pretty little head with coils of fair hair bent gracefully like a flower on its stalk. When Mrs. Compton saw the glow in Felix's eyes, she felt that her coup de théâtre had not failed. Later on in the evening, as Felix and Penn sat together in the dimly lighted conservatory, he grew to understand his position more clearly. "'Penn, darling,' he said, drawing her closely, for Penn, with exquisite tact and maidenliness, had behaved to him with more than her usual shy reticence all evening. "'I want you to tell me how you have managed to transform yourself so completely in these few months' time into such a bewitching little woman.' Do you know, when you stepped out of the conservatory before dinner, I thought you were a strange young lady, until you smiled and held out your hand. Am I so changed? returned Penn softly, but Felix's tone made her heart beat more quickly. I know that I have done my hair differently, and that Madame has given me some pretty dresses, and that I am learning all sorts of things. Don't you see, Felix? And here Penn began to blush beautifully, that I am trying to keep pace with you as much as I can. Of course you will always be cleverer than I, but I could not bear the thought that you might ever be ashamed of me. Ashamed of you? And then Penn crept closer to him and hid her face on his shoulder. Oh, Felix, let me say it all out. It will be such a relief. Dear, I have been so unhappy. I think but for Madame's kindness and sympathy I should have broken my heart long ago. Don't you remember the week you spent at Sandalins and our walk to Sandy Point? I know I disappointed you that evening, but I was merely dumb with misery. I thought you had grown tired of me, that the old love was gone, and that you wanted to be free. When you looked at me, there was a different expression in your eyes that chilled me, and you never seemed to care to have me near you. Oh, let me finish, as Felix tried to stop her. It was not fancy. Ask your own heart, Felix, if it has always been true to me. I have never cared for anyone else, returned Felix indignantly, and then his wrath suddenly evaporated. Penn was right. For a time he had certainly cooled, and, yes, though he was ashamed to own it, he had grown a little weary of his sweetheart. "'My darling,' he said deprecatingly, "'you must not be hard on me. I have had a hard fight, and if I had not always been true to my old sweetheart, 
at least I can assure you that I have never wanted to make love to any other woman. Pen, very tenderly, let bygones be bygones. If we have misunderstood each other in the past, we are young enough to make a fresh beginning. The old lad's love for his boyish sweetheart died a natural death long ago. But ever since that afternoon at St. James's Hall, I have fallen in love with you over again. Pen, dear Pen, it is you, not my mother, who must keep my house. I will talk to Mr. Burnaby and see what is to be done, and how soon I can afford a wife. But Pen absolutely refused to talk on this subject. Madame would want her for another year, and it was far too soon for Felix to think of saddling himself with fresh responsibilities. We have talked long enough, she said firmly, and Madame will be wanting her music. And then they went back to the drawing-room, and Felix listened with wonder and delight as Penn sang one song after another very sweetly. Madame accompanied her. And this was the girl that he had vaguely felt would be no fit mate for him. No wonder Felix felt ashamed and humiliated. Penn's sweet face and her gentle air of refinement would grace any situation in life. He could not doubt his love for her now, and just then Penn turned round, and their eyes met, and Penn knew that she had won her lover over again. Mrs. Compton was very kind and indulgent during the remainder of their brief stay in town, and Felix and Penn found no more obstacles to their meeting. Felix came to dinner more than once, and on one evening he accompanied them to the opera, and he took Penn to the abbey on Sunday afternoon, and they had a walk in the park afterwards. There was no question of Penn going back to the bakery. Madame could not spare her. And then, as she explained to Felix, Penn must go on with her music and French and English literature. I cannot have my work spoiled, continued Madame with her charming smile. My protégé must do me credit. When you want Penn, Mr. Earl, you shall have her and welcome, but I will part with her to no one else. And so Penn went back to her pretty rooms at King's Den, and Miriam Earl lived on at the bakery. Alas, it was the bakery no longer, for on Felix's next visit to Sandalins he put down his foot very firmly. "'Look here, little mother,' he said resolutely. "'If I let you stay on here, you must promise me to give up the cake-making. I'm going to settle a proper income on you, and you are to get some strong, active girl to do the work.' And as Miriam Earle looked a little distressed at this, Penn hastened to console her. "'Dear Auntie,' she said gently, "'Felix is right.' Do you think that, now he is making all that money, he would allow his mother to work? People would cry shame on him and say he had no heart. And you would not have him blamed. Dear heart, no, returned Miriam, alarmed by this view of the subject. But no one in their senses could cast up anything against my lad, for a better son never lived, as I was telling Madame just now. Then you will get Peggy Black to live with you, continued Penn, striking while the iron was hot. Let me go and speak to her this very afternoon, Aunt Miriam. Peggy is such a clean, good-hearted girl, and I know she will be a comfort. I don't know about the comfort, returned Miriam doubtfully, and how there will be work for two when the oven's cold passes my comprehension. But if you and Felix are set on it, I must just hold my tongue and take my ease. And then Penn shot a triumphant glance at Felix. Before Felix left for town the next morning, the glass canisters were removed from the window, and some fine geraniums from the conservatory at Kingsdean had replaced them. But now and then, when Mrs. Catlin was busy or pressed for time, Miriam would send up a batch of cakes to the vicarage. "'It is just to keep my hand in,' she said apologetically when Penn found her at it one morning. "'Sometimes when I have got the fidgets, seeing Peggy at her cleaning and having nothing to do, I am obliged to finger the dough just for amusement. I have been baking some almond gingerbread for Felix. You can take some of it up to Madame if you like with my duty.' And indeed, as Miriam grew richer, one of her greatest pleasures was to send little gifts of almond gingerbread to her neighbors. End of section 9